Turn with me to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews chapter 3. The book of Hebrews chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 1 through 6, and considering the perseverance of the saints. Hebrews chapter 3. Verses 1 through 6, give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope, firm to the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we stand, as it were, upon the threshold of your house, and we desire to enter more fully into your presence, which you have promised to be with your people. You have promised us that you will dwell among us and show us your glory. We ask now, O Lord, that as we enter into this time of preaching, you would show us your glory, and in seeing your glory, we would be well-fed and built up in our most holy faith, and we ask this all. For Jesus' sake, amen. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is at one and the same time probably the most challenging doctrine and the most comforting doctrine. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is challenging because it requires of us a diligent use of the means of grace. In order to persevere as a Christian, there's something we have to do. We have to exercise our faith in a certain way. But the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is also one of the most comforting doctrines because in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, you find a promise, a promise of grace to those who do indeed diligently use the means of grace, and that promise of grace is that you will persevere by God's power through the gospel and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is presented to us in this passage. And specifically what we're taught in this passage is that saints through a diligent use of the Word of God, will persevere in the church through a true and saving faith. Saints, through a diligent use of the Word of God, will persevere in the church through a true and saving faith. As we, but before we get into the details of this passage, and before I give you the sermon outline, 
I just want to illustrate for you the principle that's at work here. Turn with me to Second, First uh, Chronicles twenty-eight. First Chronicles twenty-eight. David is handing the kingdom over to his son Solomon. And Solomon is a young man, as we learn later on in Chronicles, when he takes over the kingdom. Solomon is being given the greatest work that a king of Israel could be given, to build a house for the Lord God. And David, as he is exhorting his son to take over the kingdom and to build the house of God, he exhorts him to persevere. Look at what he says in verses 9 through 10. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intents of the, thought, of the thoughts. If you seek him, that's the diligent use of the means of grace. He will be found by you. That's the promise of grace. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the, strength, the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. And so when David is exhorting his son Solomon to build the house, he exhorts him to persevere by seeking the Lord. Now the essence of this doctrine Returning to Hebrews 3. The essence of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that all those whom the Father has elected unto faith in the gospel will continue to believe the gospel. All those who have put their faith in the Son as their Savior will continue to believe in the Son as their Savior. All those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated and given the new birth through the means of grace will continue to be strengthened and sustained through the means of grace. The essence of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is that the triune God cannot fail in his purposes to save you. He will not fail to preserve his own. However, as we're going to see in this passage, the key to the perseverance of the saints is a diligent use of the means of grace. And now we're ready to turn to our passage. The author begins uh, in this section with what is the first imperative of the book of Hebrews. He, he begins, uh, you notice the beginning of verse 1, it says, therefore, and now he's moving into the very first imperative or direct command to his audience. And, and what he lays out in this passage are four things. The first thing he tells us is those who will persevere, that is the saints. He tells us the means by which they persevere, which is the Word of God. He tells us the context within which they will persevere, that is the church. 
And then he tells us the manner by which they persevere, which is a true and saving faith. Those that will persevere, the saints. The means by which they persevere, which is the Word of God. The context within which they persevere, which is the church. And the manner by which they persevere, which is a true and saving faith. Verse 1 is the saints. Verses 1 and 2 is the Word of God. Verses 3 through 5 is the church. And verse 6 is a true saving faith. Verse 1 is the saints. Verse 1 and 2 is the Word of God. Verse 3 through 5 is the church. And verse 6 is a true and saving faith. And so we begin by looking at the saints. Notice those he's addressing. He calls them holy brethren. He denotes them as saints at the beginning of his exhortation. Those whom he's writing to, as we learn at the end of verse uh, 1, have made a confession of the Lord Jesus Christ. They have professed to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are people that are regarded as true believers. And so they are regarded as holy. Now, now I want you to understand something about this exhortation here. Out of the gate, we need to understand this about the Christian life. Through faith in Christ, you are holy. You have been set apart to God's service. You are God's children through faith in Christ. Now, we often misstep at this point. We, we sometimes make a mistake in thinking that, well, if I am holy, I don't need to hear anymore. I don't need to be exhorted anymore. I don't need to be commanded or admonished or encouraged anymore. We sometimes think that when the Bible gives us a command, when the Bible gives us an exhortation, when the Bible repeats a promise to us, that must mean we are not Christians. It's actually exactly the opposite. The author of Hebrews is writing to them because they are holy. Because they are holy, brethren. You remember in John's first letter, he writes to the people, he says, I'm writing these things to you, not because you don't believe, but because you do believe. Because you are Christians, because you are God's people, these things are written to you. And so he begins by addressing the saints. Notice also what the character of a Christian is. The character of a Christian is holiness. The primary feature of a Christian is that they are holy. We are set apart covenantally by God's grace uniting us to Christ. And in being set apart as holy, we pursue holiness. Holiness should be the accent, as it were, of the Christian language. Holiness is the uh, spirit of Christian culture. It is holiness. He goes a little bit further to describe these saints, and he describes how they were made holy. They were made holy... Because God effectually called them. The effectual call 
is a doctrine uh, from the Reformation, but you find it all over the Scriptures. And the essence of the effectual call is that when God sends His gospel to a people, He sends it in the hands of men to preach, but the Holy Spirit, when and where He wishes, uses that preaching of the gospel to effectually draw people to Christ, to effectually change their heart, to transform them from sinners into saints. The effectual call is really where regeneration happens. And he describes the effectual call here as the heavenly calling. This is for two reasons. When the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of a man or the teaching of the church in someone's life, when the Holy Spirit is at work through the preaching of the gospel, he persuades the heart that this word is not the word of men, but it is the word of heaven. That this gospel did not come from men, but it came from Jehovah Almighty. And the heart is persuaded that this calling is not an earthly calling, but it is a heavenly calling. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians. Turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. He writes to the Thessalonians in verse 13. And he says, For this reason we thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Paul is describing the heavenly calling here. He's describing the power of the gospel when the Holy Spirit is at work. The heart is persuaded. This is God's truth, not man's truth. And every believing heart in the room has been made a partaker of this heavenly calling. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I guarantee you, you believe in the Lord Jesus because the Holy Spirit persuaded you. He is from heaven, not from man. This truth did come down from God. It did not arise from men. It's not only called a heavenly calling because of its origin and its authority, it's also a heavenly calling because of its purpose and its goal. Not only does the gospel come and persuade us that it is from heaven, but it also builds us up and encourages us by saying, believing in Christ will take you to heaven. You see, when the effectual call comes, it's like when the angel opened the windows of heaven and spoke to John on the Isle of Patmos and said, come here. Come up here. That's what the call of the gospel is. It comes from heaven, grabs the heart, and brings it back to heaven where Christ is forever and ever. That's why this is called a heavenly calling. That's why the effectual call is called this. Not only is this effectual calling the heavenly calling, not only are these saints uh, described in this way, but understand the relationship here. The author calls them saints because the work of the Spirit is evident in their life. They have been made holy brethren by the power of the Spirit persuading them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know that they've been persuaded? 
Well, that's at the end of verse 1. It's not only a work of the heart, it's also a work of the mouth. Notice that he calls Christ Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Confession is something that we do outwardly before men. And those that have been called by the gospel sent from heaven, those that have been made partakers of the power of the Spirit through the gospel can do nothing but confess. When the Holy Spirit changes your heart, it's, it's transformed into a ticking time bomb, as it were. A, a ticking time bomb of glory to God that when the Spirit works, the heart must confess outwardly. And what is the confession? Turn to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Paul describes the work of the call of the gospel in Romans 10. And he says in verse 8. Romans 10.8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so, brothers and sisters, if the Holy Spirit has worked in your heart, He has persuaded you that the gospel is the very truth of Jehovah, And in persuading your heart to believe in Jesus, your heart confesses, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Lord and my Lord. Jesus is the King and my King. Jesus is the Good Shepherd and He's my Shepherd. That is the confession that's being talked about. These are the saints that will persevere. Have you partaken of the heavenly calling? Have you been made a saint by the power of the Spirit? Or do you still regard Christianity, the Bible, the gospel, a religion of men? It's what my family's always done, and so we just do what my family does. It's where I was raised. I grew up in the South, and this is what the South is like. We believe in Jesus and go to church on Sunday and eat fried chicken at 2 2 p.m., Or have you been made a partaker of the heavenly calling? Are you persuaded by the power of the Spirit that the gospel is from heaven? If not, you need to use the means of grace. You need to ask the Lord to persuade you. And if you have, you are a saint. You have been made a saint through the work of the Spirit. And so the author describes those who will persevere... It is the saints. Now he describes the means by which they persevere. And this is verses 1 and 2. Notice what he says. Therefore, brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. A couple of things to notice here. First off, the command. He uses the word consider. This word means essentially to meditate, but we need to expand that a little bit. It it means to mentally 
and intensely contemplate something. This word is a purely mental and spiritual activity. In fact, the word that he uses is in contrast, so it's not the same thing, as observing with your senses. There are two ways that our minds work. One way is that with our outward senses, we learn about the world around us. Wood is hard. Fur is soft. Sun is bright. This is all with our outward senses. There is another way that our mind works, and that's by mental reflection and meditation. By going over something and only mentally contemplating something. That's the word that he uses here. He uses the word for mental contemplation. Notice what he also says, that we are to consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now remember what the beginning of this section says. Therefore. When a therefore is in the scriptures, you have to ask, why did he put it there? You thought I was going to say something else. You have to ask, why did he put it there? Well, this follows on the heels of chapters 1 and 2. And what has the author been doing in chapters 1 and 2? He has been considering Christ Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He has been showing you how to do this. And the way that the author of Hebrews does this is twofold. Well, it's really onefold, but there's several ways that this manifests itself. Essentially, what the author of Hebrews is doing in chapters 1 and 2 is showing us how to use the Word of God, how to diligently use God's Word. He begins in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, with a high theological statement. He gives this broad theological statement, and this is the foundation for calling Christ the Apostle. You know that the word apostle means one who is sent. One who is sent from another, usually as a representative, carrying some kind of message and executing the purposes of the one who sent him. Well, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Christ is presented to us as the apostle of the Father. He is the one who is sent from the Father. He is the one who speaks on behalf of the Father. He's the one that does the Father's will, and he now reigns alongside the Father. So theologically, we are to consider Christ. But we are also to consider Christ scripturally. I won't go through this in a lot of detail, but I hope it's evident to you. In chapters 1 and 2, there are 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 citations of Scripture. Scripturally, we are to consider Christ in the Holy Scriptures. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He cites all of these Scriptures to help you understand what Christ is like. But also, not only is the Word of God, uh, do we use the Word of God by reading it, we also use the Word of God by hearing it preached. This is something that is often missed in the modern church, but it's one of the most important insights of the Reformation. As it says in the Confession of Faith, preaching 
is the primary means of grace. In the Westminster Standards, it says that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God and primarily preaching to convert and convict sinners to edify and build up the saints. Preaching is the the handmaiden, so to speak, of the Scriptures. And notice that in chapters 1 and 2, he points us to preaching. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? Notice he's referencing the preaching, preaching of Christ himself and the preaching of the apostles. How shall we escape this great salvation that was preached to us by Christ himself? But notice also in chapter 2, verse 12, he references the continual preaching. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praises to you. So not only does he move us to the scriptures, he also tells us to be under preaching. We heard this word from preaching at first. Christ continually preaches it to us in the assembly. Therefore, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. This goes back to the effectual call, what he calls the heavenly calling. You see, preaching in the church is the means by which God not only converts you, it's the means by which he feeds you. It's the means by which He preserves you. It's the means by which you persevere. Let me ask you about your experience. I know this has been my experience from time to time. There are times in our lives when we're, we're not reading the Bible as diligently as we should. And what ends up happening to our hearts? They grow cold. Our faith is weak. All kinds of weeds of sin spring up that we didn't know were there. Or how about when you're absent from the church for some time? For either sickness or providentially you're hindered, or perhaps maybe there's a little bit of disobedience, and you you absent yourself from the church, you're not sitting under preaching for a season. What begins to happen to your heart? It begins to harden. It begins to grow cold to the things of God. Your soul is not getting its food And just as the body grows weak when it's not fed, the soul grows weak when it's not fed. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us, consider the Lord Jesus through the means that has been appointed for this, the Word of God both read and preached. One final thing on this note. We're we're looking at the means by which the saints persevere. Notice what the author of Hebrews has done. From the beginning of the book, he has talked about Christ. He's cited the scriptures of Christ. He's referenced the preaching of Christ. And now he has summarized all of that teaching into this one statement. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, of our confession, Christ Jesus. When you read the scriptures... When you listen to preaching, the essence and the sum and substance 
The whole point of the Holy Scriptures and preaching in the church is to bring Christ before your consideration. So when you read the Scriptures, you are to look for Christ. When you sit under preaching, you are to listen for Christ. Because that is how God feeds you. He gives His body and His blood for the life of the nations. He is the good shepherd who not only feeds His sheep, but feeds His sheep upon Himself. So let me encourage you when you read your Bible, pray and ask God to show you Christ in these passages. He's all over the place. We need eyes to see Him. When you're listening to the preaching, when you're attending this church or any other church, pray, not only for the pastor, but for yourself, that you might hear about Christ. But not only so, that you might hear Christ Himself speaking. Because Christ is currently speaking through the preaching. Even as it says in chapter 2, verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren. I will praise you in the midst of the great assembly. And this is the means by which the saints persevere. A couple of applications here. First, what I've just described to you, that God feeds you through His Word, both read and preached, is one of the main reasons we don't have images of Christ. Images of Christ are unlawful according to the second commandment, but not merely from a legalistic standpoint that the commandment says don't do this so we don't do that. That's always a good reason to do something or not do something. But also from the nature of how our soul works and the nature of the covenant of grace. Christ has ordained that he will show himself to you through the means of grace. That's it. Christ has ordained that he will present himself to you through the means of grace, primarily the preaching of the word of God. Therefore, if we want to know more of Christ, we must consider him according to the means he has appointed, according to the preaching of the word of God, not according to our own imagination not according to our own uh, ideas of what Christ might be like. Remember the word that he uses here. The word he uses is pure spiritual mental reflection. It is the opposite of using your senses, using your eyes. It is a pure work of the soul. And the way that God speaks to the soul is through the word of God. Secondly, I want you to understand this second application because I know that there are some who, who will not like this. And I want to put it to you this way. Because of this dynamic, God feeds you upon his word. Christ presents, him to, presents himself to you through the preaching of the word. This is why it is imperative for you to be in the church. Whenever the church opens her doors, whenever the church sets the table through the ministry of the means of grace, it is important for your soul to be there because this is how God feeds you. 
This is how your heavenly Father provides for your salvation, provides for your perseverance. You know, the food of the gospel is not like the food that your wife might make or the food that my wife makes. She makes some great food. She made uh, a dish the other night called Mexican mess. It's all the good stuff, rice, corn, beef, peppers, all in a big pot. It's a mess, but it's delicious. I ate a little bit too much of this Mexican mess, and perhaps you've done the same thing. You eat too much food, and what happens? You're full, and you're tired, and you're, you feel like you weigh 8,000 pounds. You can't eat anymore. You eat too much Mexican mess, it may make you sick. If you continue to do that, it will make you sick through other various diseases that come from overeating. The food of the gospel is completely the opposite. You can never eat enough. The more that you feed upon Christ, the hungrier you become. And the hungrier you become, God promises, I will feed you. I will feed you every single time you ask me. And as he feeds you, your capacity to be more fed increases. Did not Christ say in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As you are fed upon Christ, he makes you more hungry, not less. And so therefore, we want to be where the means of grace are provided. We want to be where the food is being offered so that our souls can be fed. Well, he says that the saints will persevere The saints will persevere through a diligent use of the Word of God, and they will persevere in the context of the church. He moves on to talk about the church in verse 3 through 5. Notice at the end of verse 2, he begins this comparison with Moses. Consider Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was faithful in all his house. Now remember, this book is written to Hebrews. And for the Hebrew, well, for the Old Testament as a whole, Moses was the chief prophet. Moses was the gold standard of what it meant to be a man of God. In Deuteronomy 18, it says that God will raise up a a, a prophet like Moses. And so Moses was the standard and the, 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 the one who brought Israel out of Egypt. So the author compares Christ to Moses and shows that Christ is greater than Moses because Christ owns the house that Moses built or that Moses served in. Look at what he says. Verse 3, this one has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And then skipping down to verse 5, Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. Now there's a lot involved in this passage, and I don't want to take a lot of time opening all the details of this, but simply notice this. When Moses brought Israel out of Egypt, he was then given a task to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the place where God's glory dwelt. It was primarily God's house in a physical sense. But not only was the tabernacle slash 
temple, God's physical house, the nation of Israel was considered God's household. That's why the author of Hebrews here can say that uh, in verse 3, Christ has more glory than Moses because Christ built the house and Moses was a part of the house. You see, Moses was merely a member of God's household, but Christ is the one who built the household as a whole. Now, throughout the Old Testament, this play on house and household happens all throughout the Scriptures. Remember the promise to David. David was at peace from all of his enemies, and he said, I will build a house physical for the Lord. Then the Lord says, no, you won't do this, your son will, but I will make you a house, meaning household. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah play on this theme. Ezra was sent to build the house physical, and Nehemiah comes after him to organize the people or the household. So there's this play on words here between house and household that runs throughout the scriptures. What this means for you and I is that this is a description of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the church is the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And then in chapter 3, he'll say that all of you are part of the family of God. You're part of God's household. Turn with me there just so you can see it. Uh, Because this is a, a very important idea in the New Testament. Ephesians 2.19. Ephesians 2.19, we have both of these ideas compacted together in Ephesians 2. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see these two ideas. Household, and then Paul moves right into the idea of a building, of a construction, of a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So, Hebrews chapter 3, the author says, Christ is greater than Moses because Christ doesn't merely serve in the church. Christ owns the church. The church is Christ's household. It is His by right. Notice the second thing that comes from this. Look at verse 5. Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. The nation of Israel and the church of the Gentiles of the New Testament are the same house. There is one household of God throughout all of the Scriptures. Moses was a servant in God's house, but notice what he says, as a testimony for what should be spoken afterward. What Moses was doing through the Torah and the temple system was foreshadowing what Christ would accomplish. And so in the book of Hebrews, he's persuading these Jews 
to say that you shouldn't hold on to Moses because Moses was pointing forward to what Christ has accomplished. And so we see that there is one house throughout all the Scriptures. There is one people of God, there is one flock, and one shepherd. And then in verse 6 he says, Christ owns this house, and he says, we are this house. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have been made members of the household of Christ. This is the context in which the saints will persevere. You know, I was reading a, 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 an animal book with my daughter the other day. And it's, it's one of those uh, uh, look and find books. Perhaps you've read those with your kids. It's got this picture. Then you have a checklist on the side. You have to find the turtle or you have to find the uh, snake or you have to find the lion. Well, this page was a page of wildebeest in a herd. It's the hardest page in the book because it has all these wildebeest on the page that are doing various different things, and it gives you about five or six. It says, find this exact wildebeest. And you know why that is so difficult, because when the wildebeest or the zebra are in their herd, it's very hard to pick one out from the other. When lions in Africa are hunting for these animals... They don't go after the herd. Because if one lion goes after a herd, he'll be trampled. What does a lion do when it wants to eat a zebra or it wants to eat a wildebeest? Well, it hangs back and it watches for the straggler, for the sickly one, for the one that is departing from the herd and maybe getting a little bit separated either through its own fault or through no fault of its own, it's separating from the herd, and when it becomes separated, it's vulnerable, and the lion strikes. Peter describes Satan in his first letter as a lion who wanders about, seeking whom he may devour. You and I are like the wildebeest herd of the Lord, and our safety and our perseverance depends upon Staying with the herd, staying in the church, staying united to God's people, and being a part of Christ's house. Now, how do we remain a part of Christ's house? Well, he says now at the end here, through a true and living faith. Notice what he says in verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. The author describes true faith with its fruits. He describes faith by what faith produces. You know, we have uh, a garden. I'm sure many of you have a garden as well. We planted various pepper plants. And unfortunately, when we were putting them in the ground all the pepper plants got mixed up and the labels got removed. So I don't know which one is which. The only way we're going to tell is by seeing what colors come out. <laughs> this one produces a green, that's a green pepper. Hopefully the purple pepper plant will work, but we're not going to find out until the fruits emerge. The scriptures often describe the spiritual life in this way. It doesn't describe it directly, it describes it by its fruits. That's what's happening here. The first fruit that he describes is confidence. 
And the confidence that comes from true saving faith is the confidence of righteousness. Through a true and saving faith by union with Christ, you have been made righteous in God's sight. All of your sins have been forgiven and God the Father holds nothing against you. You are righteous. Doesn't that give us confidence? Confidence in prayer. Confidence to go to the Father. Confidence to face the day or the week or the month. This confidence is a confidence of righteousness, not only imputed righteousness, but a confidence that comes from pursuing righteousness. You know, in the book of Proverbs, it says that the righteous are as bold as a lion, but the wicked flee when no one pursues. The reason that the righteous are as bold as a lion is because righteousness is always the right answer. Righteousness is always the right thing to do. And when you pursue righteousness, by faith we have confidence that God will reward it. God will take up for the righteous. God will reward those who seek righteousness by faith in Christ. It may not be in this life. It may not be tomorrow. The, the reward that God promises you, you may never see. That's why we have the second fruit that the author describes. The rejoicing of hope. The second thing that true saving faith produces is a hopeful joy or a joyful hope, whichever way you want to slice it. This hope is based on the return of Christ. Turn to Romans 5. We're going to look at just a few passages that speak about this hope. Romans 5.1. Notice the connection between righteousness, confidence, and hope that comes from saving faith. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's your confidence. God is at peace for, uh, with you. Verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes about our citizenship and he describes the hope that we're looking for. Philippians 3 verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And so this rejoicing of hope that the author describes in Hebrews chapter 3, that saving faith produces, is a joy that comes from the certain knowledge Christ is coming. Christ is going to return. Christ is coming, and as we read in Revelation chapter 7, He will wipe every tear from your eye. That is the hope of the Christian. 
And when Christ comes in his glory, those who are united to him, who by a saving faith in the context of the church through a diligent use of the means of grace, true saints who have persevered all the way to the end, you will be glorified with him. You will partake of his glory and there will be joy unspeakable and full of glory on that day. We partake of it now by the rejoicing of hope. Then it will, it will be the rejoicing of sight. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is challenging to us. Because the whole key to this doctrine is that God's promise in the gospel is certain to the elect. The elect will never be lost. But for us who are not God, in order to show ourselves to be the elect, in order to persevere in the faith that we claim to have, it requires of us one simple thing. A diligent use of the means of grace. That is how you persevere in the Christian life. That is how you will persevere in the faith of Christ. That is how God will work in your life is through the means that he has appointed. But for those of you that do believe, for those of you that have been made a partaker of the heavenly calling in the doctrine of the perseverance, there is a promise of grace. There is a promise that God will work. Not because of who you are. Not because of your ability to read the Bible. Not because of your ability to listen to sermons. Not because of your ability to pray. But because of His gracious favor upon those that believe in Christ, He rewards the sincere effort. And the reward is to be glorified with Christ forever in heaven. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the doctrine of perseverance that you've not only challenged us, but promised us that if we seek you, we will find you. That if we cry out to you as those that are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, if we wait at the posts of your doors, we will find you. And so we cry out, O oh Lord, make yourself to be found by us. Make your means of grace what they indeed are in truth, the effectual means of heaven to convert and convict sinners and to edify and comfort your saints. And day by day, Sabbath by Sabbath, we pray you would give us the grace to persevere. We ask this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.